From 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look back at 2023 with Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley and what's ahead. Then we talk about nebulas and what really makes them so colorful to our eyes. For public consumption, we have these beautifully high-resolution, wonderful, sensitive pictures in colors that are more appealing. Plus, we'll learn how to make a French pastry in our family recipe series. Mine is actually a little bit different from my mom and my sister. The ratio between the water, the butter, and the eggs. But I think mine is the best. (laughs) All that's coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. 2023 has been a historic year in Milwaukee County. For the first time in a long time, the fiscal outlook is looking bright after facing critical shortfalls for decades. The deal was made in part due to the work of Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley. He joins Like Effect's Joy Powers to look back at the past year and what's ahead. For the first time in a long time, I'm not exactly sure how long, uh, there is a surplus in Milwaukee County's budget, and that's due in large part uh, to Act 12. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got a question from a listener who wants to know what your involvement was with state and local leaders to help get these changes made. Well, that's an absolutely great question, and it's been over two decades since we've actually had the last surplus here in Milwaukee County budget, and it had a very integral role to really play. So, one, we started with building relationships, not just building relationships with our local uh, business leaders, local uh, community leaders and elected leaders, but building relationships with many of the legislators uh, that are elected in Madison, as well as other communities across the state of Wisconsin. And so we worked with our our, our coalition, Move Forward MKE, uh, worked in conjunction with the city of Milwaukee Mayor, Mayor Cavalier Johnson, as well as with other institutions, right? We talk about the coalition, but when you think about uh, Wisconsin Counties Association, the Towns Association, the League of Municipalities, they were uh, very involved in, in many of these negotiations as well, uh, dealing with uh, you know Republican and Democratic leadership to get this deal done, as well as the governor. Now, uh, that being said, there were a lot of strings attached to Mm -hmm. this money, uh, especially the money that was coming into the city of Milwaukee. Local leaders have taken issue with this. And as a result, it seems like the Common Council is suing to challenge these conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are your thoughts on these rules governing how we as Milwaukeeans are allowed to use our tax dollars? Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we, as the largest community, right, the largest county, largest city of the state of Wisconsin, we have to have a little bit more autonomy on how we're actually going to tackle many of these issues. We still have to go to the states in order to raise revenues and property taxes. Now, I I definitely understand why the Common Council is is a little perturbed, right, because it, it took away some of the powers that they actually have. Uh, But fortunately for Milwaukee County, we didn't have as many strings attached uh, like the city of Milwaukee did. We are still able to have our Office of Equity and all of our DEI programs and all the things that make us great in actually helping us to achieve our vision, which is uh, being the healthiest county in the state of Wisconsin by tackling racial equity. So, But I will say that 
this is when we need everybody to get involved. You know, it's not just about Milwaukee County and the dwindling of, of the legislative power of the Common Council and some of, some of the things that were, were attached to this bill. But even when you think about other municipalities, other municipalities don't have the ability uh, to do referendums the way that we used to be able to do because of the change in shared revenue for all of us. So we need to continue to let our voice be heard at the state of Wisconsin in making sure that local uh, government still has the ability to deliver for the people that we represent. Mm. Now, as part of this surplus in the budget, uh, Milwaukee County is intending to return some of that money to taxpayers, Mm -hmm. uh, specifically by reducing the property tax levy by more than uh, $20 million. Now, this sounds great in theory. I -hmm. myself am a homeowner in Milwaukee. uh, But it it does feel odd that after years and years of budget deficits, we're talking about a return in money to taxpayers and not going really into specifics on how this money will be returned mm-hmm. to uh, the groups that have been forced to reduce their budgets mm-hmm. for you know more than a decade. How is the county planning to reinvest this money into these organizations uh, that you know serve the people of Milwaukee County? Well, that's what this, this budget surplus gives us the, the ability to do, right? And, and many folks have said, well, well, why not just use these savings instead of giving us the property tax dollars, you know, back, you know, put this towards a different use. But we couldn't. Right. There's only two things that we could put these savings towards because of the strings that were attached in the Wisconsin Act 12 uh, uh, law, which is we can either put it towards our pension or we can put it towards the property tax relief. But we already made the pension payment. And so for us, it was better to give it back to this community. But we're going to see many different investments. And quite frankly, this is the first time in many years, many decades, uh, that we don't have to worry about and ask the question, what cuts can we make that are going to be least harmful? You're going to see actual investments in the community, investments in housing, right? Four million dollars in more affordable housing, building on top of the 12 million in, in ARPA funds that we've already invested. You're going to see the the the, the pop up of about a hundred different homes in the King Park neighborhood. We want to have as many single family homes in that neighborhood to make sure that people have access to being homeowners themselves. We've also invested in mental health as well, as well as the opioid epidemic that we're seeing ravaging uh, not just Milwaukee County, but entire communities across this state and across this country. And so, but we've also seen an increase in our county transit system, $16 million, one, to make sure that we can continue the levels of service that we have, but also to improve uh, our, our, our traffic security as well on those buses, not just for our riders, but for our operators alike. Uh, we'll get back to transit and a variety of those topics, actually, mm-hmm. in a moment. Um, but there there have been questions about uh, fiscal stability, specifically past 2025. Mm-hmm. We had a community member write in with this question. Uh, projections from your budget office and the comptroller's office indicate that the county will be back in a budget deficit of about $13 million as early as 2026. Uh, the budget deficit will continue to increase each year after. Uh, what other measures are you planning to implement to balance the budget uh, given the Act 12 implementation will only give really two years of sufficient funding? I, I think that many people may look at it as like, well, what do we hope happens when we go back into a deficit? Well, but let's put this in perspective, right? Come 2028, prior to Wisconsin Act 12 being a law, we were facing a $100 million deficit which means that we would have had to actually put many of our, our, our major amenities, some of our major youth services actually on a chopping block, whether we're talking about senior services, our county transit services, our most used amenity like our parks. 
But because of Act 12, we reduced that deficit from 100 million in in 2028 to about 30 million in 2028. So one, this actually gives myself as well as the County Board of Supervisors more wiggle room to make decisions in the next couple of budgets to make sure that we can keep these deficits uh, from coming back like we've seen in the past. But it also provides an opportunity, right, because we have to continue to cultivate and build our relationships with both the state and federal government. And I think there's going to be some opportunities for us to bring back even greater resources to make sure that we can not only stave off these cuts, but continue this momentum of investments that we have seen in the past couple of years. This is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers, and I'm speaking right now with Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley. Uh, you were talking a bit about public transit, and um, I'm someone who rides the bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how to drive. Well, so thank you. <laughs> if I if I did uh, not ride the bus, then I guess I'd just walk. Uh, but, you know, I have uh, definitely been interested in some better solutions to public transit, uh, the frequency of buses, and honestly the safety I feel as mm-hmm. a relatively small woman standing at often poorly marked bus stops uh, has led me to using the bus less frequently and relying on things like Mm -hmm. Uber and Lyft. Uh, What is your plan to improve the safety of our transit system and improve the reliability of buses so people aren't necessarily standing on the corner as long? Absolutely. Well, you're going to see probably an increase in some services starting uh, in the next uh, month or two, actually. Uh, We want to make sure that we're increasing those frequencies and particularly on the east side of Milwaukee where we've seen a decrease in frequency as well. Uh, But one, again, we we talk about the $16 million, right, to make sure that we can continue to have the current footprint that we have. But the real deal is is that we don't have dedicated funding for our county transit system. And so, one, we want to make sure that they are safe. So that's one of the reasons why we increase those funds to make sure that we can have safety and security on those buses. But it's going to require a greater relationship, again, with the state of Wisconsin and the federal government. Now, the federal government does help us out. And I have to, you know, say thank you to folks like Senator Tammy Baldwin and Congresswoman Gwen Moore, who's brought back federal resources so we can continue to replace our buses as well. Uh, but, we're, but we have to also look at efficiency. And, and not too long ago, and you, you've probably seen it in the news as well, that we're looking at a north-south uh, uh, bus rapid transit system. We've seen how successful of the east-west BRT has been with Connect One, and we've seen how it's just widely successful because it's one of the top used routes that we have right now within our system. And so if we can build this BRT system north-south, going as far north to Glendale, going as far south to about Ikea and Oak Creek, it gives us the ability to actually reach a particular population that is both underemployed or unemployed, but also within a half mile radius of this particular corridor, we have many people who don't have access to their own personal vehicles. So getting people to and from those jobs in different corridors throughout Milwaukee County is going to be key. But again, we have to continue to to work with the state of Wisconsin and, 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 and get them to become better partners as it relates to operational dollars and resources for a transit system as we move forward to the future. Now, I'm actually one of the people you're talking about because I live on 27th Street, and so I take the purple (laughs) line, and uh, I often connect to the current BRT, um, and I was looking at this proposal, and it looks great, and Mm -hmm. I am excited about it, but then I saw the date, and I saw when that's going to happen, and I went, ugh. 2028 until, you know, maybe 2028, yeah. right, until uh, this, this bus line is actually going to happen. How do we tighten these timelines? Because the, the fact of the matter is uh, people are using these buses 
today and might not use them tomorrow if they aren't coming with the frequency that they need to get to their job. Absolutely. Well, it's very. I would say it's very difficult sometimes to tighten the timeline. And it's because of all the different bodies that are at the table, right? So it's not just Milwaukee County. We have to also work with um, the, the, the Wisconsin DOT. We have to work with every single municipality within Milwaukee County, as well as our federal partners, because 80% of the dollars that's going to go into this construction are going to be coming from, 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 from federal dollars. And so there's a lot of moving parts when it comes down to this. But what I will say is that we're beginning to think ahead much quicker. We're thinking down the line. We're thinking about being how, how much bigger and bolder can we be as a county to make sure that we can continue not only to attract folks from all over the country to come here to live, work, and have fun, but also to retain the folks who live here. Because public transit is something that is very critical to, to, to building our population, making sure that we have a solid economic engine right here in our own region, and just moving our biggest commodity, which is the great people of Milwaukee County and those who use our transit. With that in mind, uh, a question that we got from a listener uh, is there any collaboration with Mayor Johnson on his population growth goal? I know that he's hoping to get the city of Milwaukee up to a million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, how can the city and county encourage, attract new jobs, employers to the area? Well, I would tell you, you know, me and the mayor talks quite frequently. Uh, we have a standing meeting once a month and we talk about different ideas and things that folks want to do. And uh, and, I, and I, I love his ambitious goal of, of increasing the population with the city of Milwaukee. And, you know, in order to do that one we talk about public transit you have to have solid public transit to do those things but also we are responsible for delivering many of the health and human service needs for this entire community so when you think about programs for birth to three that's important in getting to, to be an attractive place when you talk about you know, our aging population and what we do with our senior centers and on, on, with our Commission on Aging and giving our seniors a voice, that's key in making sure that they can stay here, but also attracting people to come here. And so it's really it's really about strengthening our services because the better the city of Milwaukee does, the better the county does. And then the better, if the county does well, then so does the city. And so we're constantly having conversations, particularly around housing as well, because we know that that's a critical matter here, not just within the city, but all across the county. So I would say stay tuned to to see more collaboration actually happening between Milwaukee County and the city of Milwaukee. To kind of shift gears to uh, not, not so much uh, the community of Milwaukee, but a community inside of Milwaukee, mm-hmm. a very vulnerable community. We've had a lot of issues with uh, jails and prisons mm-hmm. in uh, Wisconsin in general, and Milwaukee County is no exception. Um, what is your plan to address the staffing problems that we're facing in the county corrections division. Absolutely. So what one thing I would say is that we have two separate divisions, right? We have what we have, the, the formerly House of Corrections, which is now known as the Community Reintegration Center, which is actually under my purview. And then we have the Milwaukee County Jail, which is downtown near the courthouse. And that is actually under the purview of the sheriff's office. And so when it comes down to the, particularly the, the Community Reintegration Center, there was a point where we had about 40% vacancy. 
And we have turned that around tremendously. I believe at this moment uh, we may be uh, lower than 20 percent. And so it's really about changing that culture. But a few things that we've done throughout the years is that we've increased our correctional officers pay. Uh, We've done that prior to this particular budget. We utilized some ARPA dollars in the very beginning in around 21 to increase that pay to make this an enticing offer to get people into those doors. Uh, and then we made that permanent, right? Uh, but then we, within this budget, we also made another increase. And so correctional officers are going to be uh, getting paid close to about 28 to $30 an hour starting off. And we want folks to know that we are hiring change makers. So you can visit uh, jobs.milwaukeecounty.org if you're interested in applying. Uh, but we're going to continue to also work with the sheriff's office who's responsible uh, for the jail. And that's why we increased that pace. It's for both those jail and CRC COs. Uh, but this is going to take all of us really coming together to, to tackle these. These aren't necessarily the, the sexiest positions, right? But these are these are very critical and important public safety positions that we have to fill, not only to make sure that our residents are safe and, and, and have the programs and staffing that they need, but making sure that those who work there are safe as well. Now, uh, finally, to end things on a pretty fun question from one of our listeners, uh, it is the holiday season. It is. What is your favorite Christmas cocktail? Uh, so my favorite Christmas cocktail is something that my dad actually makes, and he makes it from scratch, and it's his uh, apple pie cocktail. It is very, very good. But he also, he, the close second would be his peach cobbler cocktail. Interesting. Yes. Okay, so no, no Tom and Jerry's in your future. No Tom and Jerry's, <laughs> um, but I would tell you, if 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 anyone wants a a a, a good cocktail that you can drink warm or cold, definitely come talk to us. I can definitely get you in touch <laughs> with my father. All right. Well, County Executive David Crowley, thank you so much for joining us here. On thank Mike you for Effect. thank you for having me. David Crowley is the Milwaukee County Executive. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, a Milwaukeean shares her family recipe for a French pastry. And not to worry, Wisconsinites, there's cheese involved. But first, our astronomy contributor will join us to talk about nebulas and what makes them so colorful. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Interstellar. You may already be familiar with that word, even if it's only from the 2014 film. The word interstellar actually means the space between stars, and in that space is where you'll find nebulas. Nebulas are the colorful, gorgeous clouds that are capable of giving birth to stars. You may have seen pictures of nebulas on a phone case or on clothes even. But why do they look so cool, and what are they made of? To learn more, I'm joined by our astronomy contributor. Jean Creighton, welcome back. Good to it's, have you in studio. It's great to be here. So we are here to talk about colorful nebulas. So to start, what is a nebula? A nebula is the Latin term for cloud. 
In fact, I call my mommy every day, and I was uh, telling her about this program that we're offering at the planetarium. And my mom said, huh, what, what, what do you mean by clouds? I don't see any clouds when I look up. And I realized that, of course, for most people, this is their experience, right? They look up, and basically everybody sees dots of light. If your eyesight is very good, you might see that in Orion, there's something that looks a little fuzzy, which is, of course, a nebula. So it took us a while to realize that between the spaces that we see stars, sometimes there are clouds, what we call, if you want a fancy term, interstellar clouds. I think people might be familiar with interstellar because of the film. <laughs> so we're defining that like here's the space. The space between, between stars. Between stars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these clouds, these nebulas, are they all made of the same ingredients or are there different kinds? Well, most of the clouds are made of similar things because, you know, there's the same, same recipes in the universe. We have hydrogen, 75%. Uh, 23% or so is helium, and then everything else in the periodic table and beyond is the 2% that's left, right? Okay. So having said that, there are different environments and there are different types of nebulas. So if I may, I can tell you the five yeah, different... Yeah, let's go through them. The yeah. five different types. So the first one is called the reflection nebula. That means that the stars that are illuminating them are outside the cloud. So you're basically getting light secondhand. It just bounces off the cloud. And they tend to look kind of bluish. And if you want to look it up, lovely listener, look up Witch's Head Nebula. It's a fun one. Uh, the second one would be, the second type would be emission nebulae. And these are the most I would say the most exciting ones because the stars are in the nebula. So they get lit from inside the Orion Nebula. The most studied nebula is one of those. And we have the planetary nebula, which is a classic case of a misnomer. We see something before we understand what it is. With really small telescopes, modest telescopes in the 1700s, this would look like Saturn. But as our resolution got better, we realized, oh, not a planet, but the name stuck. These are, this is what happens when stars like the sun go through their midlife crisis, we'd have to call it, where they start ejecting excess materials that they have in, in these layers, these shells. They're quite pretty. In fact, I must say that's probably my favorite to look at, uh, the planetary nebulae. The next one would be what happens after massive stars go supernova. And those are called supernova remnants. This is what happens when a star, again, massive star, explodes. And all its guts goes into the interstellar medium. And this is how stars recycle. Because that next generation of stars is going to be born from the debris of the previous generation. That's, that's kind of a cool thought. Amazing. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's almost a story in itself, but I'll, st I'll try and control myself and my excitement. <laughs> and we'll go to the fifth one, which is absorption nebulae. And these are ones that 
are so dense and typically cool, but dense, that light from stars behind them gets blocked. So they almost look like, you know, dark blobs. And at first people thought, well, maybe there's just no stars there. But it doesn't make sense if you look all around the density of stars nearby. So much it can't be. Yeah, a how could that spot. possibly be so few stars? Um, and what's cool about those is that in many cultures, especially in the southern hemisphere, the dark areas, say, so the clouds along the Milky Way that blocks light, um, are the constellations. So cultures use the negative space. Instead of connecting bright spots, they use the darker areas to, to find, you know, emus or, or crocodiles or, or whatever. Um, so those would be the five, the five different kinds. Okay. So you and I were talking before we started recording about how nebulae have really crossed over into pop culture. They're on phone cases, jackets, posters. So it's these bright, beautiful color spectrum, gaseous landscapes with some stars maybe popping through, things like that. Um, so this is what they look like to us as the, the public consuming them, but that's not how it starts. So even though the end product, it looks so incredibly captivating, how does it get to there? Okay. So I think it, everybody should take a deep breath because hopefully this is not going to be upsetting, but it's good to know the truth, right? So that's what we're about. That's what we're about. So Scientists don't get money to observe with very expensive equipment to get pretty pictures. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to understand how these worlds work, how these places make stars or whatever else they're doing. So usually what happens is scientists take pictures of a particular object in multiple filters because those multiple different kinds of light tell us about the properties, like how hot something might be or how dense, how ionized, whatever other properties that are interesting. So that means that typically a scientist will get back black and white pictures. There's no color at all. If you do say, ah, this particular color ought to, if I were to put the color back in, this is some sort of red, this is some sort of orange. If you combine the three colors together, you get a very, I would say, prosaic orangey-brown, mm -hmm. not very interesting. Right. So then people, let's say, in the Hubble Space Telescope or the James Webb Telescope, people said, hmm, this isn't going to appeal to the public, and the public is paying for these things. So let's make sure that for public consumption, we have these beautifully high-resolution, wonderful, sensitive pictures in colors that are more appealing. So what they do is they shift the color that you would see to a color that combined looks good. And I think I understand that there's one sort of artistic director in each of these instruments who makes these decisions of what the color scheme is going to be. Now, I don't want people to think, oh, shoot, are you saying these are completely made up? No, no. What I'm saying is that the colors have been made to enhance as much as possible the, the whole area and to show the different kind of properties, where it's denser, where it might be hotter, so that we preserve the information about the region and make it look as pretty as possible. So having that contrast to be able to comprehend a bit more what that physically looks like. Yeah, that's right. Okay. 
they still look pretty, though. These images they are sure great. They sure do. Yeah. Artistic directors, great job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as you mentioned, these nebulas are often um, star-forming regions. Can you explain how these clouds essentially can give birth to stars? Yes. So these clouds sit in space for long periods of time, and they're minding their own business. They're, they stay stable because the gravitational pull wants them to shrink. But because of all the material in the cloud, that kind of pushes back and says, no, no, I don't want to be compressed any further. So that is an equilibrium, and they sit there for a long time. When a star nearby explodes, those fast winds come in and start compressing the cloud, which gives gravity a he like a leg up. And now the material starts to contract. And now you have pockets in the cloud that get denser and denser. If it gets dense enough to allow nuclear fusion, now a power source turns on. Now you get a whole lot of light and gravity is completely stopped because oh, you've, you've made a lot of energy. So now that internal pressure is increased significantly. So now the formation of stars has happened. So basically stars form when gravity wins over the internal pressure. And gravity can win if it gets a little push from the outside. Usually it's a shock wave from an exploding star somewhere nearby. And as you mentioned, like all the ingredients are there already. All the yeah. ingredients are there. You just need to get it to be dense enough because these clouds have very low densities. No fusion is possible. But if you really condense that material, well, then now you can start slamming protons into protons and you can make heavier and heavier elements, thereby releasing energy. So we mentioned five different kinds, right, yeah. of nebulas. Mm -hmm. So do all nebulas have the makings of star creation, or are some more prone than others? Definitely some more prone than others. Um, the emission nebulae tend to be the most likely ones that have star formation right now. So one of the beautiful things about the James Webb Telescope is that it helped us see in Orion and in other star-forming regions, too, more clearly where are the baby stars. Because if they are surrounded by a lot of dust, with visible light, you can't see them. But the James Webb is using longer wavelengths, infrared, which can see through, can penetrate through all that cocoon of dust. And then you can see the little babies there. And they look amazing. And you mentioned a couple examples of ones to look up. But do you have a favorite nebula? that captures your interest in particular? I think the one that looks most made up, most like artwork, is the Cat's Eye Nebula. And it would be fun for people just to look it up because it is it is very pretty. We'll, we'll include that in our write-up for sure. <laughs> well, Jean, thank you so much for joining me to talk nebulas. It was so much fun. Thank you, Audrey. Gene Creighton is the director of the Manfred Olsen Planetarium at UW-Milwaukee. The planetarium will be having a ticketed event called Colorful Nebulas on December 15th. There will also be a free rooftop stargazing event right after the Nebula program, and you can find out more information at wuwm.com.
Lawrence is celebrated for its refined cuisine. And today, as a part of our family recipe series, we're going to share a French pastry recipe with you. Lake Effect contributor Lucien Jung takes you into the kitchens of local residents who share their beloved family recipes that they remember from childhood. In this episode, Odile Bengana shares her recipe for Gougier. They're little bites of cheese-infused pastry and a family favorite that Bengana learned to make as a little girl in rural France. I actually grew up on a farm. My parents were farmers uh, growing their own vegetables. We were raising chickens, uh, cows. So what we grew and raised, we were eating. So it was a lot of farm to table before that was a thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. And who do we have joining us? Hello. So we're joined by your son, Giannis. Yes. Have you visited France? Yeah, multiple, multiple times. And have you been to the family farm? Oh, yeah, of course. I've worked there. I've driven the tractors. I've done all that. When did you get him involved in all of that? Very early. My, my brother, uh, who lives on the farm, is really fun. He loves kids. Um, always a great teacher. The family farm, what does that look like? And, and what do you appreciate about it? I really appreciate how disconnected it is from the world. Not like isolated, but just disconnected. So it sounds kind of like teenagery, but there's no cellular data over there. So I can't bring my phone outside of anywhere that I don't have Wi-Fi. So I usually just leave it at my grandparents' house and I either run or walk to my uncle's farm. I, I take care of the cows. I drive the tractors around to feed the cows. Like it's very, it's almost like a reset. And, and you're not bored, not having no. your cell phone and all that. No, I, I enjoy the nature a lot and really just there's a very big change between French culture and French culture. It's a lot about like family and being connected and always being on your phone is kind of frowned upon. So not having your phone is like, it helps you bond with the people that you don't always live with. So, well, what, How do you feel when you see him in France and on the farm? Well, I'm so proud of him when we go there and he's just jumping into whatever's going on. Work at the farm, eating very different food at my parents' house having a kind of a different way of life. Uh, he's just going on with the flow. Uh, very proud of him for that. Do you think it's made an impact on you and your view of the world to be able to visit the family farm in France? Um, yeah, I think it's opened up a lot. When I go to France, my French cousins, what they do to pass the time is like, it's so like old school, but it's so, it's so much fun. And just tell me a little bit about family meals. Do you have family meals we're all sitting together? And <laughs> is that something that you enjoy? Um, I mean, here in the United States, not anymore because everyone's kind of moving out and like we're all going to college and stuff like that. But definitely in France, when we were all together um, during Christmas, the dinner probably starts at two in the afternoon and ends at two in the morning. I mean, it's 12 hours of just sitting there. The, the adults are probably there at like for 11 of those 12 hours. And me and my cousins, we eat for an hour. We go play outside for I don't know, four, come back, eat an hour. But yeah, those 12-hour meals aren't crazy. 12-hour meals. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know if we start that early, but yeah, we have long meals. But it doesn't mean that we eat constantly. We share, we laugh so much. Yeah, fun times, very fun times. And what were some of the meals that you remember? I guess uh, something that would be called here the shepherd's pie made with uh, beef from the farm, potatoes from the farm, uh, that would be one of them. And what are some dishes that your mom makes are your favorite? 
um, the simple recipes that she makes are always the best ones. So crepes, uh, goujeau, like the things that she makes with so little ingredients are always the best because they're so like pure and natural. I think is that's what makes it taste the best. Gougère is a specialty of Burgundy, so that's an area in, in France. And is this the kind of recipe that every family in Burgundy has their own version of this? Yes, kind of, actually, yes. Mine is actually a little bit different from my mom and my sister. How so? Um, the ratio between the water, the butter, and the eggs. But I think mine is the best. <laughs> Well, when I was reviewing the recipe, there are a lot of eggs, and you fill yours with cheese. So the cheese is actually going in the dough, so it's mixed in. How would this be served? Is this kind of like a dinner roll? No, that would be served for cocktail hour, if you'd like, with a nice drink. Oh, very sophisticated. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what are your memories of enjoying this when you were a young person? So when we were preparing these, that meant that we had guests coming. So it was always a fun time. And did your family entertain a lot when you were growing up? A whole lot, yes. And still are entertaining a lot, yes. My dad is a very, very social person. And was this one of his favorite hors d'oeuvres? Yes, but another one of his favorite is the same base as this recipe, except you don't put the cheese or the salt, um, and you put ice cream in it and cover it with uh, melted chocolate. So we're going to start by boiling the water. Um, we add the butter to it and the salt. Uh, then once it starts boiling, we add the flour and mix it very uh, rapidly until it forms a kind of a ball. So are there any special tips or techniques when making this yes, recipe? There is one very important step that you cannot skip. Once the ball has formed, after you have mixed the water, the butter and the flour, you have to let it cool off. You can't add the eggs until it's cooler or else the eggs are, are going to cook right away and it's not going to rise like it should. Okay, so you want everything to be about room temperature before you start mixing the eggs into the other ingredients. Exactly, yes. We are at some point mixing cheese into this dough. Does it matter what kind of cheese that you use? So I guess you could use any cheese. It really depends on your taste. I like to use the Gruyere. And that's the one I've always been using. I think it does give the best taste. But I've also made them with uh, cheddar, and it works really nicely too. Okay. So it's starting to boil, and I'm adding the flour. I'm mixing right away. Turn it down a little bit, and it's going to be a very, very quick process. Yeah, so you've just added the flour to the saucepan that had the water and the butter. You're mixing it now, and it's forming a loose dough. Yeah, and it will it will come in a, into a ball very quickly. Yes, it is happening really fast, and you're stirring very quickly. Yes, yes, that's what you have to do. You can't mess this up. As you're stirring, I see it's forming a ball of dough. And then make sure you let it cool off. That's it. That's almost it. Okay, so the first step is done. It took... The most amount of time that it took was just waiting for the wire to boil. Yes, yes. Oh, and I see here you have a KitchenAid out. Is, is that a modern sort of um, technique that you're using with the KitchenAid? 
No, because um, my mom had her first KitchenAid probably, I don't know, 40 years ago or something like that. Yeah, a long time ago. So I've been using that for a long time. I think sometimes when I think about the previous generation, I imagine them just with a wooden spoon over a bowl. That's, I guess, no, they had KitchenAid. I've, I've done that too. That's how I learned to cook. But <laughs> I was lucky enough to have a KitchenAid then uh, later on, yeah. So now that the dough has cooled, we're about to add the eggs. And how many eggs will we be so adding? So you have to add them one at a time and make sure you mix it well in between each egg because sometimes when your eggs are bigger, like here I have farm eggs, they're slightly bigger than those I buy in the store. Um, so I'm going to see, uh, I might only need three of them. So you really have a feel for how many eggs you should be using and what that consistency should be after you add them. Exactly, yeah. And you want to make sure you add the cheese too to see what type of consistency you have. Okay, so for those that are going to be trying to make this for the first time, what tips do you have in terms of the consistency? What should they be watching for? Um, it needs to be firm, um, not too liquidy. If you spoon it, if you take a spoon and, and dig into it, it really needs to hold itself. Okay, it'll hold its shape. And then you know that the dough is right. Exactly. But you definitely need to add three eggs at least, for sure. So add the first three eggs and then just check the consistency. Correct. Because the size of the eggs will then determine whether or not more need to be added. Exactly. And the second one now that the first one is well mixed in the dough. Number three is going in. So I see it mixing away in the KitchenAid and it has the consistency of mashed potatoes. Uh, but pretty dry mashed potato, I would say. So I'm going to go ahead and add another egg and the cheese at the same time. And how long do you mix for? As long as it's needed, as long as it really needs to be a soft, uh, well-mixed dough. Yeah, the dough looks so soft and light and smooth. Yes, it's really beautiful. And see how now I can make a little ball with um, two spoons, actually. So one is going to scoop up the dough, and then the second one is going to push it off the spoon, the first spoon. And I'm making little, little balls. Um, that will grow as they cook. Okay, so these are about one inch balls of dough. Exactly, and you can actually make them the size you want. Uh, you can make them much bigger. Uh, you can make them um, bite size. It's really up to you. So did you help with this process when you were little? Yes. Yes. And I wasn't doing a great job when I was little. I was going all over the, you know, cookie sheets and my mom was lining them up perfectly, perfectly and all the same size. I still have a hard time making them all the same size. <laughs> yeah, then that's going to go in the oven for about 25 minutes, but you really want them to have a nice golden color. Uh, so we have about... 40 balls of dough, about one inch in diameter, on the cookie sheet. We're just going to put these in the oven. How do you know that it, when it's done? So you really want to see a nice golden color. And what will the texture be like when it comes out of the oven? So it's going to be very crispy on the outside and soft on the inside. And can you eat them right away or do you have to wait? It's up to you. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay, so they've been baking for about 25 minutes and we're about to take them out of the oven. Yes, see how the color is nice and gold? Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. They look like almost dainty little biscuits, but you can tell that they're lighter than that. Yeah, you can tell from the outside. And the smell will also tell you that it's ready. You can smell the butter yes. and the cheese. You get a little hint of the cheese. Yes, exactly. All these smells, yeah, mixed together. Okay, let me just try this. If they're cold, put them back in the oven for just a few minutes before you serve them. So you want to serve these warm? That's how I prefer them, yes. Mm -hmm. These are so light and so airy, and the cheese comes through in a very subtle way, but still with impact. Yes, it does. So in this case, I mix the cheese in the dough. And I was actually looking up a recipe just before you came of a very famous French chef. And I was surprised because he actually sprinkles the gruyere, the cheese, on top of the dough before it goes into the oven. And I've eaten that kind of gougère and I don't like it because the cheese is kind of burnt and I don't like that taste. So I really would encourage people to mix it in the dough. Yeah, I think oftentimes with recipes, um, people are always thinking about ways that they can change them or enhance them. And it seems that you really have an appreciation for that original taste. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it too much. <laughs> and I just wonder sometimes if people make these recipes when they're feeling nostalgic, or is it that just growing up, your tastes have been influenced in a way in which this is just the taste that tastes good to you. Yeah, I think it tastes good to me. I never thought about making that when I was yeah, missing my country. Um, no, it's just happy memories. And the flavors that you just really like. Yes, exactly. And I'm, I'm so happy I was able to reproduce the same flavor, you know, with kind of different ingredients. And you know this, you made this from memory. Yes, I did, yeah, yeah. But you know how many times I, I've made those? <laughs> oh, hundreds of times, I guess. That was Odile Bangana sharing her family recipe for Gougere, a French pastry with Lake Effect contributor Lucien Yule. You can find our past family recipe episodes at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or a conversation you'd like to hear on the air, give our Community Connection Line a call. That number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. We'll take one more break, and when we come back, we'll share a short encounter WUWM Susan Benz had recently with two people spreading holiday joy. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. You never know who you're going to run into when you're working on a story for WUWM. Recently, our environmental reporter Susan Bentz was working on a story in Spring Green when she ran into two holiday celebrities. 
While gathering interviews, Mr. and Mrs. Claus showed up, and Susan just couldn't pass up the opportunity to say hello. This is our ninth season, and we started in town of Spring Green here. We actually started, and so we honor the town every, every year we come here. And it's just like how it's grown from when we did breakfast wow, with Santa. Cool. The first year was 57 people. Today we had we served over 720 some kids at the food pantry. No, for the breakfast with Santa. And breakfast with Santa. I'm sorry. Not the food pantry. Anyway, I can't get things straight. That's why but I'm here. I'm just I'm just here to spread the joy and cheer, you know, and jingle all the way. This this happened was because we used to dress up for Halloween, we and love we went as Halloween. and we went as garden gnomes one year. And I said, so one of my clients said, I know that you two like to dress up for Halloween. Would you consider doing Santa and Mrs. Claus? It would be like Halloween, but at Christmas. So we thought, well, we'll give it a try. We borrowed a Santa suit that Spring Green had. Mm -hmm. And then I had a friend whose mom had a Mrs. Claus outfit. And the whole way home afterwards, we were filled with such joy and how much fun we had. We went and got our own outfits. Oh gosh, we could write a book. We have seen a lot of the kids here in just Spring Green alone grow up. Um, the first year we did it, a little toddler, she was like a year, but not even two years old, brought Santa a soft snowman ornament mm -hmm. that she probably got here. Yes. And gave it to Santa, and we still have it. And then that the was next our first year, we. from one of the kids. It yes. just breaks your heart, you know? And then we see her year after year. We still have your ornament. We put it on the tree, and yes. their eyes just light up. And then sometimes, too, there's even an adult that's having a bad day, and just to put a smile on their face, it just is very yeah. heartwarming. It's a lot of joy. And like I said, just the hugs and opening up the kids and spreading the cheer. You know, the biggest thing is getting them to come up to you. And so we've been doing this for a while. Now we've been, you know, so many times here. I get hugs all the time. They come running up, and that is so, just to see the smile of the parents, you know. And it's just like. Because they remember you, because they remember yeah. us from year to year. And now the mom, we do group homes, too, and then we do uh, retirement centers, too. And so it just. Like I said, we could write a novel of the things we do, and it, Santa doesn't listen well sometimes. And oh what, what, what word, was that this morning? This morning, he asked a little girl what she wanted for Christmas, and she said a violin, and he said a pheasant, and I, I about lost it. <laughs> so Santa needed to list, practice on his listening skills sometimes. <laughs> You know, it's just the joy of that stuff. It just breaks you. You know, it's just like, dude, what? Can't think. You don't want socks and underwear? Socks and underwear! <laughs> Especially if they don't want to talk to you, that gets them going. And it cracks Mrs. Claus up, you know. Like, a kid asks for a violin, and how does he get pheasant? It doesn't even correlate. One wanted a metal detector, and I said, you want a pet cactus? And he goes, no, Santa, I want a metal detector. There you go again. I said, How do sure you get you? pet cactus out of a metal detector? Answer me that. And that's the joy. Very nice talking to you. Because yes, yeah. Santa Claus is coming to town. That was WUWM's Susan Bentz chatting with two people in Spring Green, Wisconsin, who dress as Santa and Mrs. Claus this time of year to spread holiday cheer. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. 
Search for Leg Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. There are two Milwaukee natives competing in the TV show Lego Masters. We'll talk with them tomorrow on Lake Effect, plus we'll share a list of top games to give this holiday season. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pop, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming. I'm in the big fat man with the long white beard.